so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, it is a privilege beyond our capacity to understand uh, that you, the creator of the universe, uh, who is far more awesome than we can imagine, would choose to meet with us and uh, to speak to us, but yet you do. You speak to us in your word and you promise as we meet together around your word that you speak directly to us. And so we ask again, as we do every week, um, that you would give us the ability to hear what you have to say, that you would, by your spirit, open our ears and our heart, that you would help me as I speak, that together we might be the people who hear you speak to us and be changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna uh, begin where we kind of ended last week. If you were here with us last week, you'll know that what we talked about is that the hope for this world is found in the church. I know that seems very improbable, maybe even ridiculous as we consider how the church so much is tarnished by its own failings. But Jesus, when he says, as we saw last week, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He is telling you, in you, the hope of the world is found. And our calling, we said, was to allow Jesus to make us as strange as he is. To, to change us so that we might reflect the beauty of Jesus to the world around us, so that the world, as they see Jesus through us, might come to him and be changed. The hope for the world is in the church. This morning's passage, written by, of course, a follower of Jesus, Peter, we see a very similar underpinning. Uh, you might notice at the very beginning, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, allow Jesus 
to shape you and change you and make you as strange as he is. That's how it begins. And, and notice what the ultimate goal is at the very end of our passage, where it says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, here's the same framework. Let us be changed by Jesus so that as the world looks at the church, at the people of God, they might see the glory of Jesus and be changed. Now, what this passage does is I think it takes the conversation one step further. It, it helps us to focus on one particular aspect of this work that, that Christ is doing. And that is that for us to be that church that shows the glory of, the God, of God around us, it needs to have a change in our mindset. Again, notice this very first verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That, that what Jesus is doing is changing our way of thinking, our our mindset, and, and if we missed it, then we see it again in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. See, there's a focus here on, on mindset. For us to be changed, for us to be the beautiful church that we are called to be, for us to reflect the beauty of Jesus, Peter is telling us here, we need to take on the mindset of Jesus. So about a decade ago, a little bit more, um, Stanford professor, uh, psychologist, uh, Carol Dworkin, wrote a, an interesting book entitled Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. I don't know how many of you have read it. It was a bestseller. It has a fairly simple thesis, and that is that people can be divided along a spectrum of what, what she calls fixed mindset and growth mindset. Uh, fixed mindset is exactly how it sounds. The idea that when it comes to our gifts, our talents, what we have is what we will always have, that there isn't any kind of changeability to who we are. If you are good at baseball, that's great, but if you're not, you will never be. If you are smart, great. If not, you will never be smart. It's this sense that we're relatively unchanging. The growth mindset, on the other hand, sees things very differently, that that if if we seek to cultivate our abilities through through effort, through uh, looking to others to help us, we can change significantly and grow quite a bit in our different areas. And what Dworkin argues, persuasively I think, is that these two mindsets, where you fall on the spectrum, has an enormous influence on future success, more so even than your talents or your gifts. Because if you have a fixed mindset where you believe either you are or you aren't and there's nothing to be done about it, then every time you face a challenge, it's a test. Are you good at this or not? And so every time you face a challenge, it's terrifying because if you are evaluated, if you fail, that means you're bad and there's nothing you can do about it. And so with a fixed mindset, we resist anything that's challenging or risky because failure is almost unthinkable. On the other hand, the growth mindset sees challenges very differently. If we fail, there's an opportunity. How did I fail? Why did I fail? What can I learn from that? It's a way that we can grow. And so as you might imagine, fixed mindset stays where they're at, but a growth mindset, because they see challenges as opportunity, they recognize that they can grow, continue to get better in a way that the former does not. So it's an interesting thesis in and of itself, but what I want us to recognize is the underlying foundation to what she's arguing, and that is our mindset, 
Our, our way of thinking makes an enormous difference to our way of living. Um, she put it this way. She wrote, for 30 years, my research is that the mindset you adopt for yourself profoundly affects the way that you lead your life. It can determine whether you become the person you want to be and whether you accomplish the things that you value. Your mindset can determine whether you become the person you want to be and whether you accomplish the things that you value. Now, that sounds right to us if we think about it, doesn't it? Because we know the way we see things, how we see ourselves, how we see the people around us, how we see the world, will make an enormous difference in the decisions we make, in the priorities we set, in what we try and what we don't try. Mindset is extraordinarily influential when it comes to the trajectory of our lives. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that when when we are being told by God, here's what I'm calling you to. I want you to be reflecting Jesus, showing the beauty of Jesus to the world around you. He's going to say, and for you to change, it's going to mean that you need to have your mindset to change. And so for this morning, I want us to just kind of consider three things. What that mindset is, why we want to, to arm ourselves with that mindset, and then finally, what it looks like to live with this mindset, what it looks like in practical terms. So first, what is this mindset? When we're being told to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, what is this way of thinking that we're being told about? Well, verse 2 summarizes it for us. The way of thinking is to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. The flesh just means our time in this life. No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the mindset that we're being talking about, to live no longer for human passions. And by passions, it's talking about our impulses, our desires, the things in the moment that might drive us. But instead, to live for the will of God. Now, to understand this, is probably worth taking a step back for a moment and realize that when you and I, or when, when humanity was created, we were created with a certain order, a certain way that we were designed to be. You and I were designed to have God as our God, for him to be the one that we serve. That's how we are wired. And we were created also with, with desires and impulses which are good and part of the way we're supposed to be, our way of kind of experiencing and feeling the world. But these desires were never meant to be what drive us. They were meant to be what serve us as, as kind of part of our obedience to the God who is our king. That's, that's how we were meant. That's how we most thrive. And what sin does is it fundamentally disorders the way things are. That's always the way that sin works. And it is especially clear when we think in terms of what I've just said. Because what sin did, when sin broke into the world and it really kind of broke us, is it turns things upside down. So if, if the org chart before, to put it in a crude way, was God and then the choosing, our choosing selves and then our desires kind of at the bottom, when sin comes, it, it turns it upside down. So, so now our, our impulses, our desires, the way we feel in the moment is in charge. And then we, our choosing selves, are kind of following that. And then God is subordinated to everything else. I know that sounds abstract, so let's try to kind of tease this out for a moment. Think of those moments where you do something where really you know better. So it's, it's late at night, you're watching Netflix, and 
you know you really should go to bed. It's good if you get sleep, but you know, autoplay is just going, you know, Netflix, you know, coming soon in five seconds, and you're like, sure, and just keep on staying awake, even though you know you should go to sleep. Then it's the next morning, and of course you're tired, but you have this goal to, to, to exercise every morning because you know exercise makes you have a better mood, it makes you healthier, it makes you work better, it's just good. And yet you just decide you're not going to do it. Later in the day, you're interacting with a family member and because you're tired and because you haven't exercised, you're a little bit grumpy and they say something that irritates you and you suddenly in your mind have this really brutally devastating criticism that you realize this would be the stupidest thing in the world to say because we'll just break everything and it comes out like a half second later. You see, what each of those situations are is you are not choosing the way that you would really rather be in that moment. Your impulses, your desires have just kind of taken over and you're just kind of like following them. And those are just obvious kind of superficial examples. Think, you know, if we had time, we could really try to, to draw this thread out further. If we just think for a while about how often you and I respond to anxiety, for example. Deep, underlying anxiety, how often does that drive us in ways we'd rather not even acknowledge? It drives our workaholism. Or, or maybe you, like me, have a trouble when you feel anxious, you just suddenly want to control everything and everyone. Or, or maybe you find yourself, when you're feeling anxious, just snapping at people. What's going on? This is not the, the life that we have chosen. This is allowing our desires to be our master, our impulses, and then we just kind of follow. Now, this is not news. Most of us are probably aware of this. In fact, there are so many bestsellers that are written about this, books that talk about figuring out what the important is rather than the urgent, figuring out how to make good habits, because it's a, it's a real problem. But these books almost never mention what I think is even a, the deeper issue that's going on here, and that is not only have our impulses and desires, our passions come to the top, but we've relegated God to the very bottom. That is, God now in this new disordered way of living exists to help us get what we are wanting in the moment. We don't probably consciously think in those terms, but that is the human default. In fact, Peter uh, in this passage is, is very specifically targeting maybe an obvious example of this way of living. When he describes what, what the Gentiles, and that's those who are non-believers, want to do. Notice how he describes it. Living and sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now that last one kind of sticks out weirdly, doesn't it? Because all the other ones seem to be of the same piece, and then it says lawless idolatry. But they all do fit together because what commentators... Um, contend, and I think they're right, is that what Peter is talking about is, is maybe Dionysius or some other god of god of pleasure. That's the worship that he's talking about. If you were worshiping Dionysius or Bacchus or whomever, the way to worship them was to give yourself over completely to your desires. Whether it's drunkenness, whether it's whatever, you worship this god by doing whatever you want, which is convenient. So, so what you see here is People creating a God, because that is what idolatry is, right? Every time there's idolatry, it's us creating our God. People creating a God who will get them what they want. There is our desires, there is us, and then we find a God who will get us to those things. That's the order. 
Now we might wonder, okay, that, how is that relevant to us? Because we don't have many Dionysian cults in America, right? But I would suggest that, that we have a different way of, of serving our desires. In suburbs, it's not as much like this, this raw hedonism. It's more kind of protection against anxiety. I mean, what drives us in the suburbs is a fear of suffering and a, and a desire for security and comfort and stability. That's, that's what pushes us. And wouldn't you know that the God that seems to be worshipped by many is a God whose agenda is our comfort and security and stability. Do you see how that works? It's desires, our choosing self, and then God meets our agenda. And the way that we can see that this is what we have sometimes made God to be in our suburban lifestyle is what happens when the true God calls us to something different. So what happens if God says something that we find offensive and confusing and not comfortable? Or what happens when the, when the true God brings us through suffering and following him becomes hard? Or, or what happens when the real God tells us to do something that we deeply don't want to do? I know a person who, um, who left his spouse for another woman, and when he was being confronted by fellow believers, because he himself would identify himself as a Christian, said, I just can't believe that God would want me to be unhappy. Do, do you hear what's going on? My desires, my impulses, that's what's important. And this God, for him to exist, he must be the one who just answers those needs. If, if God doesn't do that, then we leave whatever church that is, or we leave whatever God that is, and we decide the God that I believe is in someone else. That's the disorder that sin has brought about. And, and what we want, need to understand, and this is what, what Peter is telling us, is that when Jesus came into this world, he didn't just come to bring us back to God in terms of forgiveness. He, he came to bring us back into reality, to reorder our very being. So it begins, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Why is that important? Well, think about Jesus, how we see his so perfectly ordered life. As he is on this earth, again, he says, I only do what the Father tells me to. I only do what I see in the Father. My calling is to do whatever pleases God. God is so clearly what drives everything. And yes, Jesus has desires. It's not like he is someone who is without any feelings. We see him get tired. We see him grieving. We see him joyful. And we see this probably even come to a climax at the Garden of Gethsemane where he will even voice his desires to God saying, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me because he's saying, I don't, a part of me does not want this right now. And yet, what does he also say? Not my will, but yours be done. God, you are the one that I serve. My desires are a part of me, but they are all in service to you. And when Jesus rescues us, when he invites us into his family, when he renews us, he opens up for us again that way of being. He invites us again to this new way of seeing. It is an insight that we are 
invited to arm ourselves with, to take hold of, where we once again recognize that I am not my own, as we confessed just a little while ago, but I belong body and soul to my God. Paul says something very similar. In in Galatians, he speaks of when you became a Christian, the, the Spirit of God began to be at work in you. And now there are these two different impulses. There is the flesh, and by flesh it's talking about the self that we used to be where we were following our own desires, and there is the Spirit. And you have a choice. You can indulge the flesh, or, he says, you can choose the way of freedom to keep in step with the Spirit to allow the Spirit to direct you. And what he's talking about is this new reordered self that Jesus invites us to where where God is the one who is in control and the one who's our master and we follow him. And then there's us and then our desires are subordinate to all of that. And, And the instruction of this passage very simply is arm yourself with this. Jesus has given you this weapon in the fight against sin. When it says the one who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin, what it's saying is this is the antidote to the very power of sin. Sin works by disordering. Jesus is going to reorder you so that you realize even to the point of suffering, what I do will always be what God asks me to do. Arm yourself with that. Don't don't leave this weapon in the garage just rusting. Put it on. Because a beautiful church, a church that has the mindset of, a church that is beautiful like Christ needs to have the mindset of Christ. But it doesn't just say that. We, we see the reason why this is important. And the reason why this mindset is so important is really simple. Because having this mindset is what reconnects us to reality. This mindset is the mindset of truth. Because in this world, we are horrendously delusional. It is a delusion to think that just kind of doing what we feel like we want at the time will make us happy. And I don't even need to convince us of this, do I? I mean, we all know that the life of, of endless Netflix binging and keeping our nose in our phone and, and shoot, you know, shooting out different criticisms of people, that's... That's not the life that we want. We know that our impulses are not good, wise masters. And and Peter doesn't feel like he needs to convince people either. Do you notice how he says uh, that for the rest of the time, okay, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's a really kind of awkward way of saying what a waste of time that was, wasn't it? For the time that has passed, when you used to live that way, that's enough. You don't need to do anymore. It was a waste of time. And and we know that. To to live with the belief that just doing what we want to in the moment, to just kind of follow our immediate instincts, to think that will get us anywhere is delusional. It's a waste of time. But there's an even deeper, more horrendous delusion that is going on here. And that is the idea that the God of the universe who made everything just by speaking only exists to kind of fulfill our little needs. I've thought about this. Like, what what is it? I mean, because the thing is, I've mentioned this before, 85% of Americans do not say they are agnostic or atheistic. 85% at least of Americans believe in some sort of God. 
So it's not that there is a rejection of God that's widespread. It is an adaption of a God that fits our needs. And I wonder what, what is it that we are ultimately thinking when we just decide that, that the God that I believe in would not want to make me unhappy? It reminds me of like when I was three years old and I would play hide and seek. And we've seen kids do this, right? Where when we're supposed to hide, we just do this. And we assume that because we do this, no one is going to see us. I think that we're kind of thinking the same thing. We go, you know, if I just don't think about who God really is, if I just kind of pretend that all that matters to him is just whatever matters to me, that should work out great. What are we thinking? It might work a little bit for a time, but there will be a time when truth surfaces. That's the point that Peter makes here. He says, they, that is those who are living this way, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Just think of what that's saying. That each of us someday will be face to face with God our maker. And no longer will this be working because we will see him in his terrifying, awesome glory. And any myths that we held on to because we felt like they were comfortable will just burn away at that moment as we are face to face with the truth. And in fact, Peter says that time is closer than we realize. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. By the end, he's saying the goal. God has been at work for centuries upon centuries, bringing all of this world to an end point, and we're almost there. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He already rules. We're just bringing things to a conclusion. The end is at hand. You will see God sooner than you realize, he is saying, whether through death or through Christ's return, each of you, he is saying, will meet with God face to face. And, and any who have held on to the belief that the only reason that God exists is just to, to meet our needs will be undone. But, but that is not what it is for those of us who've been rescued by Christ because what Christ does is not only does he bring forgiveness and rightness with God, but he also brings us back into reality. He reorders us so that we might recognize that I am not my own, but I belong to God. I exist for him. So why would we want to do this again when we have been brought to reality? So, so this is the why. We're, we're, we're told to, to no longer live for our, our passions but for God. And the why is because this is the way things are. And, and finally, what is the what? Like what, what does this look like if we are putting this mindset on? How does it change how we live? And, and Peter, really, that's much of what this passage is about. There are kind of two things. There is both a, a kind of a negative and a positive. There is a, a, a turning away from and a turning to that we see in these verses. The turning away from is probably exactly what we'd expect. Peter says you need to turn away from the life where you're just indulging your passions in the moment. I mean, we saw the list. The list that he was saying we need to turn away from is one that where we give ourselves over to drunkenness or to sexual immorality or to a lack of self-control. 
If we were to go to Galatians, we would see Paul adding to that list things like divisiveness and giving ourselves over to rage. The point is not that this is an exhaustive list of what we're turning away from. It's the larger principle that we are turning ourselves away from submitting to our impulses and desires and the life that that looks like. Now, I think when we try to think, what does that mean for us? Maybe some of us have in our minds some clear kind of larger examples like some of these that were just mentioned that that we go, oh, I need to change here. But I also think that for many of us, it is not even so much in the macro big choices, but it's actually the the micro choices that fill our day, the habits that we need to look at to think about what does it mean for us to take on this mindset. So I'll give you an example. Over over my sabbatical, I became kind of aware of what maybe I would describe as a disordered way of being in one of my habits. Like many of you, I I like to try to wake up early enough in the morning to have a time of prayer and Bible reading, and uh, I found that that is virtually impossible without coffee. So for me, that's one of the first things to do. I wake up and I start making the coffee, and the problem I found is that because I don't like to have the coffee on the time delay, I like to have it fresh, it takes a good 15-20 minutes from the time I start it to the time that coffee is ready. So what my habit has used to have been is, uh, like, you know, kind of we all do if we're at Starbucks, I'll, you know, I, while I'm waiting for coffee, I pull out my phone. And, you know, I check calendar. What do I have on for the day? Check email. Check the news, because that's valuable to know. I check sports scores. I check Twitter. And 35 minutes later, I'm suddenly finding myself with less time to pray and less time to study God's Word. And even more than that, my mind is going everywhere. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to check email or calendar or any of those things. What I'm saying is that for me in that moment, I was not saying, God, I am submitting to you. I was just letting my impulses take me wherever they wanted to go. And it wasn't the life that I wanted. So for me, and I guess now you are like my hundred or so accountability partners, my, my choice has been to stick my phone and leave it you know, plugged in, and to do something else while I'm waiting for coffee, like empty the dishwasher or something productive like that, so that I can have a morning that is rightly ordered. I know that seems really trivial, doesn't it? But, but the reality is so many of those things have actually significant consequences. I found that this has a significant consequence for me. It is, it is part of what it means to take on this mindset. Do you notice that when he says in verse 7, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There is an alertness that we're being called to, an intentionality. When we're being told to arm ourselves with this mindset, we're being invited to be thoughtful about our days and to ask, where is it that I am wrongly just giving myself over to my passions and impulses? Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something as little as how we look at the phone when we're, we're getting ready for our coffee. For me, this was an area that I realized I needed to repent. Where is it that God is calling you to repent? Now, I realize that when we start talking about this kind of turning away from, this this self-denial, it feels like we're just playing into the stereotype, the reputation that Christians have, that Christians are fun suckers, that, that we are afraid of joy, and that we're kind of repressive, This is the reputation that Christians have had 
really as long as they've existed. Do you notice that, that Peter mentions them as well? It says, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. What a bunch of prudes. But that isn't the truth. Because here's the thing. It's not when God is calling us to turn away from submitting to our passions in the moment. It's not because he's asking us to become less human. It's not because he's asking us to stop having joy. He is calling us to a greater joy than the joy of binging Netflix and browsing endlessly. He's not asking us to ultimately deny ourselves. He is ultimately restoring us into the people we were created to be. And that's why we want to see in this passage not just that, that, that taking on this mindset is a pulling away from, but to recognize how this mindset is a putting ourselves towards something else. And that's what we see in the second half of our passage. Do you notice when it says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In fact, in the Greek, it's even closer related, those two statements. It's, it's pretty much saying, here's how you are supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You will do this by, above all, loving each other. So, so here's what's going on. If you are being disciplined and turning away from just kind of following your impulses and you're saying, God, I'm not my own, I am yours, and God says, good, now you are free to love because that's what I made you to do. He is freeing us to be loving because that's how we were created. The, the call here is as we submit ourselves in every way to God to experience as a community a rich and deep and glorious love for each other. Do you, do you see the love that's being described here? This is, this is a powerful love. It's a love that is strong enough to handle our failings and failures and foibles as a community. So that if I say something really insensitive, or you do something that's hurtful to me, we keep going on as a loving community. Why? Because it says love covers over a multitude of evils. That's the kind of love that we are being freed for. A, a love that has enough depth that we are not stopped by the tiring aspect of relationships where we're willing to go the extra mile of welcoming people into our lives, of even sharing things about ourselves that we normally keep private, of, of caring about others and carrying each other's burdens because we are called in this love to offer hospitality to each other without complaining. A, a love that is energetic enough that it has come to realize that everything that God has given us, everything, is not meant just for our enjoyment, but to be shared. Our homes, he gives us to share. Our time, our, our gifts, our abilities, each of us are so gifted. He gives us to share with others that all of us might enjoy them together because as it says, that the one who gives, uh, that as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Stewards, God gave you this so that you could share it with others. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. And I want to ask you just for a moment to try to imagine what that's describing. This, 
this love that handles our faults, this love that goes deep, this love of sharing. Can you imagine a community like that? Can, can you see it maybe in your mind's eye? I hope you can because it is beautiful. And what our passage means for us to understand is that when, when we are being called to take on this mindset, Christ is not turning us away from the life that, he want, that we want. He's giving it to us. He's not calling us away from joy. He is giving it to us. That as we arm ourselves with this mindset that Christ gives us, it changes not only us, but as a community, and enables us to have a beauty about us that the world, when it comes to see it, goes, what is going on there? God is at work, isn't he? For that's how our passage ends. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus. That, isn't that your desire? It is mine. That somehow through us and all of our faults, that our mindset would be so renewed that we would be made so beautiful that the world around us sees the greatness of God. If that is your desire with me, I invite you now to respond in a time of prayer. Um, we're going to give maybe even a little bit longer time of silence, and I want to ask you to even right now seek to arm yourselves with this mindset, to, to take it on, to think about areas where maybe you are, are not living this way, and, and to confess, and, and not only to confess, but also to ask God for his help, because he is the one who will empower us to be the people that God has created us to be. So let's take some moment in silence and prayer, and then I will lead us in a couple minutes' time. Father, I think of uh, how in your psalm, um, David writes, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Uh, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any unrighteousness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord, that is our prayer. We pray that where there is disorder, where there is unrighteousness, where, where there is anxiety, where we give ourselves over to the desires of the moment, 
Would you please help us to see that? Would you please lead us in the way everlasting? Lord, we want to be sane. We want to see things rightly. And Lord, we acknowledge before you uh, that we have sinned against you. And, and what's more, that we on our own lack the ability to change ourselves, that we are weak. But Lord, you promise us, uh, you promise forgiveness. You promise us the power of your spirit that gives us the very strength of Christ. And so we ask that your spirit would enable us more and more to be conformed to Christ. That you would help us truly to take on the mindset of Christ so that you and your glory would be seen through this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 32 reminds us of this really important truth. As happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. And here is the truth, that in Jesus, you can be happy because your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.